This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. For this, our second week of a multi-episode series looking at the work of native plant organizations and gardeners on the ground and around the country, we head to Los Angeles. David Newsom is a filmmaker, photographer, and storyteller. He's also a gardener. And when he became a father for the first time, he realized the urgency he felt in making sure his daughter had access to a deep relationship with the beauty and diversity and wonder of the natural world. He determined that the best place to start was in their own backyard, a short distance from a major urban center, one of the biggest cities in our country. His own wild backyard adventure led to his founding of an endeavor known as the Wild Yards Project. He joins us today from his home and wild yard in Los Angeles to share more. Welcome, David. Pleasure to be here. So what do you do all day, David? (laughs) What is your relationship to plants and gardens that you are here talking to me? That is a really funny question. Um, My wife wife just asked me that the other day. Um, Well, I'm a storyteller by trade, so I've been in the film and television industry literally since 1987. But I've worn a lot of hats in that world. And and as I was wearing all those hats in the world, I've always been an outdoorsman. And I've always taken, you know, as far back as I can remember, I have found my solace in the natural world wherever I could find it. The garden, um, I think, by way of a, a small amount of history, we moved into this little neighborhood in Northeast L.A. when my wife was, I think, eight months pregnant. So the clock was ticking. And uh, there was a lot of things we liked about the house, but the yard was an intimidating disaster of upturned, pretty baked dirt, um, a couple of dead ornamental pomegranate trees, which are very common here in Northeast LA because we have a very large Armenian population and it's a very important fruit and a very symbolic fruit for their culture. And that was about it. There was about a lot of uh, upturned, uh, like pipes and upturned earth and all kinds of things that had been neglected for a very long time. And I didn't really know what to make of it. So we started a garden. Uh, at, At first, it was just to get something green in here. The only thing that I knew that I wanted was bees and butterflies and things like that. I didn't really know anything about native plants. I didn't know what even people meant when they said that. Kind of hilarious to me now, but that's true. And so uh, we started putting plants in, you know, we went to like Armstrong Nursery and we got the, the plants that they said were pollinator friendly and none of them were from anywhere remotely near here. And but we started that way. That was how we started. So we started with a, a little, like what I call a little lazy river of a lawn that kind of rolls about 40 feet back through the garden. And then it's flanked on the north side of our garden with a couple of shrubs. The one thing that I did kind of intuitively, uh, that's the smartest move I ever made is I planted a toyon bush in a 15 gallon pot. And that's now 12 feet wide by 12 feet high. And it has become my kind of I don't want to say centerpiece because it's a little more important than that. It's my barometer. You know, it's my it's my guiding light in my garden now, this beautiful toy on shrub. But um, 
I feel like my brain could go in a bunch of different directions here in terms of how to answer you. What I do is now that I've over the last five years converted to 80% native plants, the trees are a different matter. The trees are a giant uh, 60-foot jacaranda that lords over everything and kind of dictates a lot of the planting because it eats up so much of my light. Um, it also drops a lot of biomass and that gives you certain issues to deal with. But my yards become a laboratory. I have 80% native plants here, um, all indigenous to Southern California, not necessarily directly the Mediterranean chaparral of the Los Angeles basin, but pretty close. And um, it's a swan dive into, you're, you're creating a space for life to occur. And so as I began to experiment with plants and see which thrived and which did not, I also began to notice a change and an uptick in the wildlife that came to the yard. And I just started to chronicle that. And I can sit for hours in the woods. That's been true of me since I was a little kid. So here I am, a grown man with two little kids, and I'll sit on a rock in my garden if I don't have some place to be with my camera or without it and just watch what comes and goes and try and observe that relationship between the plants that I've planted and the animals that come. Yeah. Is that an answer? I don't know if that was an answer. That's a great answer. So <laughs> when you first started with this yard, when your first child was in the belly, what year was that, David? That was 2014. And I planted my first plant in the garden, which was a non-native aster, I got done putting that in the garden at 11 o'clock at night after clearing a bunch of area and laying down a bunch of mulch. And my wife came out onto the deck and she said, we got to go. <laughs> so I, I literally put the first plants in my yard the night my daughter was born. That is lovely. The confluence of that, the, the, the coincidence of that, call it what you will, lit a fire in me. And I didn't plan a lot. I wasn't someone who, you know... I didn't even didn't know if I would have kids, but the minute our daughter was born, I suddenly became profoundly aware of this howling sort of urban center that's just 70 feet from my house and the lack of a rich diversity of wild things coming into the yard. And so when she was born, I just kept thinking like, well, we have to have more butterflies, you know, and uh, we have to have bees. And then I began to take a swan dive into bees. And it's like, oh, wait a second. Honeybees aren't really even native. They're very prolific and they're very productive. But there are some 4,000 native bees in the United States and 1,600 in the state of California alone. And they need habitat as much, if not more, than the European honeybee. So every little thing decision I made about a plant led to a revelation and a doubling down on what I wanted that plant to do. Yeah. Well, you've touched on some really great themes here. And the first one being those universally formative moments when people seem to be introduced to or find or it finds them the love, the impulse to garden. Mm -hmm. And one of them is when you have your first home. And the other one is when you have kids. And another one is when you are a kid, which is clearly what happened and will continue to happen for your children. So I want to go back just a tiny bit. 
and have you set the scene for us a little bit. You've intimated some of it, the kind of person you were before you had kids, mm-hmm. before you, you know, lack of planning, kind of nature-loving, <laughs> being in the woods with your camera. Where did you grow up and what were your earliest influences that kind of laid the foundation for you to be the kind of person who would want to do something with your backyard once you got your new home? Yeah. It's funny how that all kind of comes rushing back once you create a garden and, you know, because a garden so profoundly deepens your relationship to nature, you know, the natural world. So I grew up in Northeast New Jersey, about 15 miles outside of New York City, in an, in an area called Essex County, and that was really all, it, it all had been farmland right up until around the Second World War, and then you had all these GIs coming home with their GI Bill, and development just exploded. And so what you had were these secondary and tertiary forests that had grown up over over farmland. And then that was being slowly developed into these suburban tract, you know, ranch houses and things like that. So I grew up in a very cookie cutter sort of suburban ranch house tract, not far from New York City. But where those houses end, they just throw up some cyclone fence and there was forest. Um, And sometimes there was forest for blocks and blocks, you know, they were all slated for development at some point. But when I lived there, you could run down, I could run down my neighbor, the Valkenberg's driveway and pass their house and jump on a log and jump over that rusty old cyclone fence. And I would be transported back in time. There'd be rusted old, you know, broken down farmhouses and things like that that were filled with little brown bats. There were streams that were filled with a very kind of stunning, when I think about it now, diversity of wildlife. The little streams were filled with pickerel frogs and wood frogs and marble salamanders and redback salamanders and box turtles and deer, you know, uh, moving through that area. Ironically, now there's more deer. Most of that other stuff is not there and all that land is gone now. It was just I went back for the first time a couple of weeks ago. I really never went back. And that's all been developed. But that, so interestingly enough, I mean, you know, it's a very compromised nature, but that which was there made a huge impression on me. And so for me, anytime I wanted to, uh, I mean, not to go too into it, but I grew up in a very turbulent household. My, my parents weren't happy and there was a lot of, there was a lot of fighting and things like that. But also I just, I took refuge in plants and I always did. I would always just climb into the little low overly manicured junipers in front of our house. And I would just lie there with my cat and a book. And as you know, lying down in junipers is not remotely comfortable, but for some reason (laughs) I liked it. Um, And then, or I would run across, you know, me and my friends, we'd jump over that fence and we'd go on a journey and it was powerful. And it, you know, it stayed with me my whole life. And, you know, interestingly, I've heard Nick Hummingbird tell this story and Doug Ptolemy, the, the big traumatic moment for me. And I don't know why I can, well, we can talk about why. Uh, there was a pond that we would go to in a development that had been, they'd laid the road in, but they hadn't done any development actually. And there was a beautiful little pond and it was full of spring peepers. 
And so we would go there, me and my friend Chris Voles. We would walk up there every night, uh, especially in the spring, obviously. And we'd listen to those sounds. We had little flashlights, and we would shine the flashlights on the peepers, and we'd watch them do their thing. And sometimes the toads would come in to mate, and during the day, uh, we'd watch the tadpoles. And it was, you know, two blocks from my house, and it was a very, very um, big part of my childhood. And one day we came walking up with our buckets and our nets and there was a bulldozer dozing over the pond. And mm. I, you know, it was devastating to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of all the development I saw, for some reason, the act of filling in that pond, I don't know why watching a bulldozer rip through trees, you know, didn't fill me with the same kind of horror. But, you know, we went running back to our houses and we got our parent. We couldn't understand why anyone would bulldoze a pond, you know, completely oblivious to the fact that the house that I was living in may very well have been a pond once. So that was a big thing. And that stayed with me. And I think there's something about the the violation of a water ecosystem um, that I think hits those of us who have an empathy for the natural world on a really primal level. You know, it's very hard to articulate, but that crushed me. Yeah, those those moments of epiphany for people that, um, and I, I recall a recent interview I did with uh, Mary Reynolds from Ireland talking about this same idea, this moment where something is taken or, or you are finally aware of something being harmed, being taken, being obliterated, that you go, oh my Oh my goodness! And yeah. you, you're you're hooked, and it's that moment I think that we find the energy to work harder on behalf of of not losing any more than we possibly can. Like, and she calls it this kind of tapping into what do you know you do not want to live without? What do you know you you do not want to miss for the rest of your life and all generations to come? And, you know, that loss of a pawn, that violence and loss of life is so yeah, visceral. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting. There's a, there's a big dog leg in my journey because I went from being a kid who was very obsessed with the natural world to a kid who got involved in storytelling and, and kind of showbiz. And I, and, I, and I found myself, it took a wide arc for a long time away from it in a sense. That, it always stuck with me. And the one thing that I always had, my brother was four years older than me and, and he also was an avid outdoorsman. He was a big rock climber and he, he knew he didn't want to live in an urban area. And he moved out to first Utah in 1980, and then he moved up to Idaho and Southeast Idaho. And so even as I was pursuing a very urban life, I lived in London for a while, then I moved back to New York City, and then I moved to Los Angeles, which we can talk about the incredible biodiversity of Los Angeles. But for a long time, I had a real, there was a real separation for me between urban areas and nature, you know, Mm -hmm. where we lived was not nature and nature was out there. And so I would go hiking and camping and backpacking, uh, you know, a little bit in the Sierras and up through Idaho and Wyoming, um, all through Utah. You know, those are the places that I, where I kept my, my hand on what I felt was the, the key heartbeat of nature. Even though when I moved, you know, at the age of 29 to Los Angeles, the first thing that I did while I was hacking my way through the entertainment business was find places to hike. And I was hiking here in the Santa Monica range and the San Gabriels. And to be honest, without 
fully grasping the unique biodiversity that yeah. we find here in the Mediterranean chaparral. It took me a long time to really appreciate how vital, how unique and imperiled these ecosystems are here. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, I'm not sure if this is true for you, but you can um, let me know if it is, but there is, again, this universal possible trajectory of a garden and or children introducing you to the immediacy of of nature where you are all the time and it's being imperiled like it sometimes takes us planting a garden like you going to Armstrong Nursery for us to even start to come close to understanding what is native what is not native what mm-hmm. does that even mean and where are we talking about and you know you have a jacaranda tree i would guess that 80% of all of LA county believes that a jacaranda tree is native to that environment because it's been there for a very long time now yep I have I have so many thoughts from this, but you know, people come up to me now and they'll go, Hey, I, I just put in a whole native garden. You gotta come over and see it. And I go over and see it and they've laid a bunch of gravel down and they have a little baby jacaranda in the ground and they have a bunch of, you know, aloe from South America and you know, that's about it. And so there's and I don't fault people for that at all. Nope. That it is a long and very um nuanced journey from just going from you know, drought tolerant, which everyone, you know, everyone gets that now. Everyone here in, in Los Angeles and I think in the West gets drought tolerant. But to take that journey from drought tolerant to native or indigenous, and even why, like why should they take that journey? If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell. And this week we're speaking with David Newsom, gardener, father, filmmaker, and storyteller, working to make the world especially perhaps the urban and suburban worlds, a little more wild with his Wild Yards Project. Stay with us. Hey, so in last week's program with Courtney Allen of the Native Plant Trust, I put it out there that we, you and I and all of us, might want to take on the task of learning more ourselves. A community challenge I called hashtag plant of the month CP, in which we each take it on to learn one new native plant in our area and share it and what we learned about it with each other either by sharing it with me over email for me to share forward here, or by posting it with the hashtag on Instagram or Facebook for each of us to find and learn more ourselves. I had so many nice emails and notes about this from you all, and so now I'm even more excited. I posted my first hashtag plant of the month CP pick in my monthly newsletter of you from here. If you don't get the monthly newsletter and would like to, go to the newsletter tab at cultivatingplace.com and subscribe there. In the newsletter, I write about things I've not had a chance to get to in the podcast, people and places and plants that inspire or move me. In the coming year, you'll get lots of updates on the speaking events coming up around the new book and around Cultivating Place in general. From Portland to Seattle, Maine to Florida, and a lot of places in between, I am hitting the road to meet up with all of you. 
Until then, though, next month in the View From Here newsletter, I'm going to post a few of your Plant of the Month CP picks to share. I can't wait. If you'd like yours shared, send me an image and a description, either by Instagram DM or by email, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. Now, back to our conversation with David Newsom, gardener, father, storyteller, and founder of the Wild Yards Project. He learns more from his garden than he ever imagined possible. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. And we're back with David Newsom, founder of the Wild Yards Project. When we left off in our conversation, David was discussing the sometimes long and circuitous journey we each take to being in relationship with the native plants and natural world around us. He's touching on how no matter when or why we wake up to these energies and beings in our midst, there's never a wrong time or a wrong way. He's interested in why we start the journey in the first place. As we come back to the conversation, David tells us about his own adult moment of epiphany that took him out of his own self-absorption and back into relationship with the nature he loved and was immersed in as a child. I've always been someone who is is interested in shamanic work. That's one thing I've always sort of kept my finger on the pulse of as I've gone through life. And I worked with a guy for a while who worked with entheogens, that sort of plants that evoke spirit. And I had been kind of living a highly self-obsessed urban entertainment existence for a while. And I still hiked very much. And I still was out in Idaho and Wyoming and Utah whenever I could. But I was very focused on you know, me and my career uh, in the entertainment business. And I just had an experience that I won't go too much into, but it was literally where it was uh, an, an awareness of nature as a, as a thing, as a force, as an entity. And it was basically the message is like, where have you been and what are you doing? And it was life-changing for me. And that, that sort of redirected me on my journey to remember who I was and the things that I loved when I was a kid. And I, and I started a bunch of things out of that. I, my photography took a turn. My writing took a turn. And in many ways, I only bring that up because it, it really was such a powerful moment you know, and I was very interested in even writings about this, The Cosmic Serpent by Jeremy Narby and books that talked about work by a German um, ethnobotanist who, you know, went down and studied the tribes of Peru, the Shipibo Indians and things like that. And the, and what had what had always occurred historically was that when you would talk to the shamans and things like that in this Central and South American tribes, you know, there was a big, there was a, there was a line in the sand where essentially these shamans, you know, they say, where do you get this knowledge? Where do you get all this plant knowledge? How do you know to combine the root of something from a vine, which is thousands of feet away to make this entheogen that gives you this experience, right? And they'd always say, the plants tell us. And of course, Western based science was like, that's ridiculous. But I have always found 
and I, I need to preface what I'm about to say by saying I, I'm not a, I do not espouse recreational drug use, and I'm not a recreational drug user in any way. But I do think that in a properly controlled setting, entheogens, things like psilocybin or mushrooms or ayahuasca, can kind of open a door to a different kind of sensitivity or understanding. And you may not even be aware what that is, but you're getting something. And in that experience that I had, you know, I got a message very loud and clear, which was where you've been. And, and it was, and it very much evoked for me the love and connection to nature that I had when I was a kid. And, and that, so that fired it up, that stoked the engine all over again. And, and it's still, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know what that, that reemergence of my commitment and passion, I didn't know how, what to do with that as a guy working film and television, but it, has never left me and it has always guided my steps. So I started trying to tie things back to nature, at least in my life and how I lived as much as I could. And the moment we had a house, I knew I wanted a garden and that's all I knew. I didn't know, you know, that I would become a native habitat zealot or anything like that. <laughs> um, but I knew that's what I wanted, and I knew that I very badly wanted my kids to, whether they you know, grew up to regard it or not, whether they followed in my footsteps and cultivated and practiced the same love of the natural world that I had, uh, I, I still wanted them to have that experience. And it was from that, that point way back about a decade ago, that inciting event back then sent me on a trajectory that led me to trust that the one thing I needed to do was to give my kids an experience of the natural world where they lived. And everything has flowed from that. And it's, you know, my yard is just now a giant laboratory. When people who really know what they're doing walk into my yard, like, you know, they're like, wow, you need more yards. Cause there's, I, <laughs> You know, I break all kinds of rules. I overplant. I stick things where they shouldn't be. I'm like, I don't know. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. I'm not trying to be a landscape architect. I'm, you know, I'm just trying to see what I can learn from these plants. Yeah. So, okay, so describe for us your garden as it currently exists. And then we will talk about how we, you sort of used this, epiphany moment of 10 years ago, and then five years after that, got a house planted in Aster, helped, I'm assuming, supported your wife while she bore your first daughter, and it has flown from there. Tell us what it currently looks like. How big is it? And, you know, I'm guessing that little river of grass maybe is still there. And what, mm -hmm. what kind of what kind of plants? You say 80% native, which seems yeah. like a really specific number. Like, I would not have that number for mine. I just know there's a lot of natives. So talk to us about what your garden looks like right now. So my property runs east-west. So it's 50 feet one way and about 140 feet the other way. The bulk of that is taken up by a driveway that runs the length of it a little garage that I'm speaking to you from now in the southeast corner of the property, the house. So out front, there's a 10 by 30 foot, uh, and it was just dead sod when we moved in, facing west, uh, and that is under the canopy of two very old, uh, kind of beautifully sculptural junipers, which many people have recommended I cut down, but I haven't. Um, but between those and the fig that someone planted, which is another very common tree here in Northeast LA, 
there's not a lot of light that gets in there. And unfortunately, it gets a very challenging light, which is that late scorching sunset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's actually, uh, I think, to, to certain people, they would look at that garden and go like, oh, my goodness, that garden is a mess. But to me, it's one of my great success stories because um, – and Nick Hummingbird had a big role in this. Nick was a huge help. We found plants that get along and are happy in there and, and you know can survive off the water that the junipers sort of don't get first. So there's that. So there's a 10-foot by 30-foot garden right out front off our little porch. We live in a little like box-style craftsman house, really common here in California. And then from the north – east corner of the property, you go about maybe 30 feet across and then about 40 to 50 feet to the house. And that is the rest of the garden. And that's bisected by this little kind of wine meandering lawn. Against the north wall is this big toyon kind of holding everything back. And underneath that, there's a black sage, a um, prostrate sage. I always say that wrong. I say a prostate sage, and, and then people look at me cockeyed. <laughs> prostate sage, a black sage that, um, you know, I had no idea how it would do, but it's now about 12 feet by 12 feet wide itself, and that kind of shares, that kind of tucks under the canopy of the toyon along with some uh, Catalina snapdragon. And then if you keep moving uh, sort of to the west from that corner, the toyon and then the um, – Black sage are flanked by hummingbird sage, which is very happy. It's a really happy and very dynamic combination of plants. And I, I had very little to do with that. I stuck these things in the ground. And then the one thing that I've tried to do is be really observant of what's happy. And when I see things that are happy, I double down on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I try to go for groupings when I can except for when I have to put 7,000 different kinds of plants right next to each other because I just have to do that. (laughs) And then right across from that is a big, big uh, section of California fuchsia and a giant loquat tree. Uh, What what we have cleverly done is we have, I say 80% native because everything I planted is essentially native except for one or two things. But I have inherited a large pomegranate tree, which is right off the driveway at the back of the house a giant loquat tree, and a giant jacaranda tree. And what I'm really proud of is that the trees that I inherited produce more leaf litter than one could ever imagine. And I'm kidding when I say I'm proud. They drive me crazy. (laughs) And I just can't bring myself to cut them down. Uh, The jacaranda gives us so much shade, but it is constant work. You know, between the tiny leaves that fall and then the stems that those leaves spray out from. And then, you know, once you get all this, not all the stems up, I try and let as much of it go to mulch as possible. But if I didn't pick them up, you'd be walking on a bed about a foot thick of these stems, um, which, you know, take over the great percentage of the yard. So right around the time that my California blue-eyed grass is blooming beautifully, the the jacaranda drops all its purple blossoms and upstages them. (laughs) It's just a constant dance with the jacaranda tree. Anyway, so if you continue down that north Toward the west, you go through the massive loquat. And then I had a few fruit trees right before we get to the house. And I took most of them out. Um, I have a gray water system that that runs pots to 27 different areas in the yard. But they weren't getting enough light. I kept a, I kept a bear's lime. And, uh, and then I have some blueberries in pots. And then you hit my house. 
And then if you come across my little lazy river of a lawn, there's the, 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 what I call the south garden. That's between the lawn and the driveway. And that is definitely, uh, that starts under the canopy of the jacaranda again. So if you start on the eastern side, there's a holly leaf cherry that uh, is so happy right now. And that kind of holds down a space under which there's a bunch of euchre, about a 12 foot by 5 foot span of euchre and ribes viburnifolium. I have about four different kinds of ribes current in my yard. I have the ribes viburnifolium, which is the Spooner's Mesa cultivar. And I have, uh, I'm looking at the fuchsia flowering gooseberry, which I had to, I had a big, beautiful one, but it was growing kind of <laughs> into the path. And, and for those who don't know what a fuchsia flowering gooseberry is, it's deadly. It is uh, beautiful, gets these rich, vibrant, you know, dark green leaves uh, in starting around the fall. And then it drops these cascading rows of uh, sort of blood red flowers. Um, they're gorgeous. Hummingbirds will, will fight to the death over these plants. But once they drop their foliage, they're just covered in stickers, really pointy spines, and they're pernicious. Uh, and so my kids were getting beat up, and my wife finally looked at me, and she said, it's it's this plant or us. Right. <laughs> uh, so I, I moved it back. Uh, now it's kind of in the middle of this little garden, uh, you know, that starts at the back. And so under that, I have, I have a huge pitcher sage, the El Tigre pitcher sage that you kind of have to walk past when you walk into the narrow part of the, the yard. And I like that because it gets all over your clothes. I've always, one of the things I've always loved about the chaparral, and this was starting years ago when I would just take my dog, Bert, who went with me everywhere. Every time we'd come back and come back to the house after hiking, my dog just smelled of, you know, Artemisia and, you know, all the plants up there. So the black sage. So I, I really like having a fragrant garden. So right across from all that black sage is this giant El Tigre uh, pitcher sage. And then there's some coffee berry in there. And there's, uh, I just dropped a um, manzanita, ground cover manzanita in there. And then if you follow that whole line of garden, is this too much? Is this TMI? No, no, no. Keep going. This is actually kind of interesting for me. I'm like, oh God, I don't know if I remember the names of things. And if, so if you keep traveling along that line, along the south garden toward the house, there's a bunch of um, deer grass. I use deer grass as kind of a barrier because like an idiot, I put fruit trees kind of all over the place when I first did this garden. Um, without thinking <laughs> that fruit trees needed a lot more water than, you know, Mediterranean, most Mediterranean chaparral native plants. So I planted the deer grass, the junk is everywhere to take up that water. Um, so I have gray water that runs to all the fruit trees. And then I planted a barrier of junkus to kind of soak up all that excess water. So in front of that, I could plant the more drought tolerance. A plant that has been ridiculously happy in our yard is the uh, Abutamon pomeri, the Indian mallow. And I love it because when a lot of the other plants lose their blossoms, it, it'll keep going. And it just provides a lot of food source for a huge diversity of uh, native bees. So I have another, I have about three of those in the back garden here. There's a big one. Once you get past, there's a red barren peach that I'm desperately trying to save the fruit on. And there's a snow queen nectarine next to that. And then there's this massive <laughs> Indian mallow, which has no business being next to fruit trees. 
And then that drops down to a little water element I have. Water is obviously, moving water is a key thing to create habitat. I have a, a little fountain there that's flanked with poppies and uh, Areogonum rubescens and Areogonum crocatum. I have four different kinds of buckwheat in the garden. And the rubescens is, uh, I think, native to one of the islands right out there off the coast. Mm-hmm. I forget if it's Catalina or um, – but, yeah, it's one of the yeah. islands. It's not native to the whole the whole floristic province, but, boy, it's a good one. Oh, it's great, and it's really happy here. So that's another one I've planted a bunch of. So I have probably a, a total of maybe 10 feet of that, 10 feet by 3 feet of that. And then in among that, once you get to our porch – there's a fig tree and there's a non-native. It's the last it's the last remaining non-native thing that I planted that I've let live, which is a orange jessamine. It's like a it's native to Mexico. And it's a big shrub. So that creates a lot of shade starting around three o'clock. So under that I put more eucara and I have um, Pacific irises and I have a bunch of monkey flower that I've stuck in there as well. And then the garden sort of trails down. There's a pomegranate along the driveway, and then I have another big um, I have another big Indian mallow and I have some white sage and I have, I have probably six different kinds of sage in the garden. I have a celestial blue that I've just planted. We'll see how it does. Everything is challenged for light here because the, the jacaranda is so big yeah. that by the time the sun gets around it, there's a midday blast and then the sun wraps toward the west and it heads towards the front of the house and that the pomegranate, which is kind of flanks our deck it's great. We love it. And this year it's producing ridiculous amounts of fruit as everything is. David Newsom is a father, a gardener, and the founder of the Wild Yards Project based in Southern California. From his seat, quote, with 10,000 species a year disappearing with loss of habitat and 40 million acres of lawn in the U.S. waiting to help solve the problem, the new wilderness begins here with native plants in our own wild backyards. Unquote. Stay with us, we'll be back for more. Okay, so thinking out loud here, I am always intrigued by when and why and how somebody recognizes and embraces their own impulse to dig in and garden with this world. Having kids or having pets or anything besides ourselves to take care of in this world is often one of these triggering life thresholds. Have you seen The Biggest Little Farm? It's a lovely and uplifting story about how one farm grew and made themselves fully apart, a functioning and contributing member of the larger natural world around them, hardships and all. And it all started in part because of their love and care for their dog, who just wanted to run and play in the open space. David Newsom wanted his daughter to have more butterflies and birds and bees in her childhood. A botanist friend of mine, Julie Nelson, has shared with me a quote from a friend of hers, Jean Seidel, who died in 1997. Julie describes that Jean was an early advocate of native plant conservation, and one of Jean's favorite quotes was, 
You may not like living with us now, but conservationists make great ancestors. In an email after our conversation, David shared with me this. After we spoke, he said, I'm revisiting the subject of my mom, who always said to me, but David, I really thought you were going to be a biologist. He goes on to say, she was a paragon of tolerance when I was a kid. In our suburban tract home, I had dozens of tanks filled with hamsters and gerbils and tropical fish, iguanas, old world chameleons, snakes, frogs, and salamanders. We raised baby birds to health, took in raccoons from the ASPCA, and for a while even had three monkeys, two squirrel monkeys and one capuchin. I owe her my mother, more than words can convey. This is the kind of parent, to my own kids and to your kids, and the kind of ancestor I want to be too. The one who supports and teaches and embraces more plants, more animals, more life. I know you all get this. Now, back to our conversation with David Newsom and his wild backyard journey in relationship to his native plants of Southern California. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. We're back to our conversation with David Newsom, founder of the Wild Yards Project. When we left off, David had just walked us through the topography and native plants inhabiting his back garden, where he and his family play and learn. As we come back, David shares with us the importance to him of making sure that we humans are also welcome, conscious, and conscientious participants in enjoying and being nurtured by this backyard wild. We then go on to hear about the birth of his Wild Yards project, its programs, and its outreach. The whole thing about this was always based on, um, I'm forgetting her name, but that beautiful SAQs to care, and making sure that, you know, to me, all gardens at the end of the day, for these ideas to survive, they have to include and invite people in. I think as a philosophy that I really hope to shift the paradigm, it has to be inviting to people. It has to give people an experience and give places for people to sit and enjoy and play and barbecue and do all those things. So, yeah, yeah I mean, exalt and console, right? Like I think, you know, and that's been said, which is the role of, of good art. And I think it's the role of a good garden. It has to exalt and console. It has to do something to you when you enter that space. And I have a very particular barometer for that. You know, there's there's gardens that I know people are very wowed by that I'll walk into and I'm not moved because I, they're, they're too sterile. They're too controlled. I appreciate the knowledge that it takes to execute something like that but they don't move me because they don't feel vibrant and alive. And so when I when I am in a space that feels vibrant and alive, when, I, when they're, all those things are interacting in a way that makes it its own, in a, in a sense, my body knows that I react to it. And I watch people respond to that. And I, and I think you have to give them the opportunity for that. You have to invite them in and let them just sit there. You know, a, a buddy of mine who's kind of a skeptic, was over one day and he, and he was just sitting there and he's like, he's like, there's so many things flying by. And, uh, you know, 
I love that. I love when I'm sort of like sitting there thinking about whatever we're talking about, you know, like, I don't know if this is a good, I don't know if the cut of this thing is very good at all. And he looks up and he just goes, there's so many things flying by, you know, we forget, we forget that the world wants to be alive. And if you don't find a way to just sort of seduce people with that and invite them into that and let them have that on a deeply, I don't want to say emotional level. It's not emotional. It's like a frequency thing. It shifts your frequency. Um, then, then, you know, good for you. I mean, you're, you're doing something that's good for you and, and there's places for that. You know what I mean? But I think that for me, my goal is to amplify and export a model that thrills us and that we seek. And that brings us to Wild Yards Project. So <laughs> you have you have this beautiful home. You have this beautiful garden. You have this career in filmmaking and the uh, entertainment industry in Los Angeles. And you have now two little people who mm-hmm. play in your garden and a lot of things that are flying around. Tell us what happened and how one led to the creation of this passion project known as Wild Yards Project. And tell people what it is as well, please. Oh, I'm just hanging. I'm shaking my head. A normal person would have just let it be at your own garden. A normal person would have just said, I have a great garden. I love my garden. I love what it does for my family and my life and left it at that. But being a storyteller... As we were planting things, and I love photography. I used to do a lot of fine art photography. I don't really anymore. And I, I, I just like to have a camera. And I kept photographing things that were coming to the plants. So one thing kind of led to the other. One, it was just fun to do. But as I was, you know, quite literally focusing on these things, I also realized that I didn't understand my yard at all. <laughs> and I, was, I just started going, like, what is that? And that led me down this incredible rabbit hole about bees and about, you know, how many native bees there are and how many different blossom structures they need and how imperiled they are. You know, everyone talks about the honeybee, the honeybee, the honeybee, and no offense to honeybees. And I actually did a campaign for Friends of the Earth about the honeybee. And, you know, the farmed honeybee, the colonized honeybee is, is you know, they, they do have a lot of issues with that. It's a little different with the feral honeybees. But I became really transfixed by the leafcutter bee that was on my clarkia. I was watching this thing cutting these perfect little sections out of these little, these little moon-shaped sections out of my clarkia. And I was like, what is that? And I started to photograph it and I started to follow it. And then I was photographing one bee on you know, the areogonum. And then I was like, I don't know what that is. And so I, you know, ran out and got California Bees and Blooms, which is an amazing book. And I started to take a swan dive into bees. And so I was just posting these pictures is what I'm getting at. I, I saw things, I took pictures of them. I would do a little research and I post a little piece on them because that's my favorite thing to do is to take pictures and write about it. Um, interestingly enough, the first time I ever did that was on a book about my brother who's mentally disabled, who lives in Southeast Idaho. We moved him up there from a group home in New Jersey after my mom passed. And the whole book was about weeds. It was basically a tribute to these foreign elements being, you know, taking root in different places kind of as a metaphor. And so I did a series of portraits of him inside all this German thistle. Uh, Because up in you know in the south, they uh, in the southwest and in the west, they have a real problem with that. But I did kind of a love letter to it, Um, 
And that was after reading David Kwan's incredible essay, Planet of Weeds. But I digress. Anyway, I, so what I was doing was I took pictures of what I saw, I wrote about it, and immediately started to hear from people that weren't environmentalists, they weren't members of the National Wildlife Federation, they weren't members of the Sierra Club, they're the people that I knew that I'd met through my life in the entertainment industry. And it just grew and grew and grew until finally I was like, look, you know, and this is all via Instagram and Facebook, I went, I got to, I got to create a separate space for this. And by that time, I knew I was, you know, hooked, uh, that this was a story that I had to tell, and I had to find a way to tell it. So I sniffed around and I, I landed on the Wild Yards project. There was an intermediary process where I created a thing called Someday All This about the world that our kids will inherit. And that was a blog I ran uh, for a while. But that was the kickoff, was a piece I wrote about called Enter Annika when my daughter came into the world and this idea of creating habitat where you live. It really all sort of started from that and then the photographs, and then the little essays I'd write with the photographs, and then creating the Wild Yards project and and buying up you know all the URLs around that, and it's grown and grown as I tried to sort of define what the the site would be. Um, and so, what the Wild Yards project is is inspiration, education, and uh, implementation for creating native habitat where you live, really simply put. We're based in Los Angeles, but the site tries to give people tools, no matter where they are in the United States, to to do it once they have that aha moment. So as a storyteller, my job has always been to, especially working in documentary and reality television, is to take sometimes esoteric or arcane or complicated things and make them very understandable. I had my own aha moment with this, by the way, where I, for years I'd been like, why aren't I a biologist? How did I end up in the entertainment industry? Why am I in the entertainment? Why are I out there in the woods, you know, fighting for the rights of all these creatures that don't have any say in it? And suddenly it became very clear to me that this was my job, that my job is to tell the story however I can do it. And I've learned how to do that. The money isn't the same, uh, and so finding the money to tell the story is my big challenge now. But my, So that, in, in short, is what I've done. 40 million acres of land in the United States, 1 million uh, you know, species uh, you know, uh, imperiled, 10,000 lost a year due to habitat loss. The new wilderness begins at home. And so taking that idea and just amplifying the work that's already been done by so many great people and trying to find a new audience via storytelling, via writing essays, uh, shooting and writing articles, via making short films, um, and obviously through social media, which already has, you know, when I originally got this idea, I was like, I got to create an app and the app will be like next door and it'll have every, anybody who wants to join can join and they can be a data point and they can tell you what they have in your yard because I really believe that your neighbor looking over your fence is one of the most powerful tools of dissemination. And so I wanted, I wanted to do that. And I drew up a little, you know, plan for it. And then I took it around and the the cheapest bit I got was $2.5 million to create that app. And I was like, okay, let me put a pin in that. Right. (laughs) Let me me put a pin in that. How else can I do this? And a friend of mine who runs a very successful nonprofit, she goes, there's a little thing called Facebook. 
<laughs> and I was like, no. And she said, there's another little thing called Instagram. And I was like, no. Anyway, that's what I did. And it, you know, it really helped me build a base. And from that, I just slowly started building out the sections of the website that I thought that, you know, sort of fulfilled the role that created the framework for me being able to do this and scale it up as I went along. So inspiration, education, and then a section called Get Wild, which is basically a series of resources for people both locally. I, I teach a course to realtors because I think they're the ground zero of creating a new space. And so I, I've given them, uh, we've created a, a, an analog. Basically, we, we, we polled them and we tried to find out, you know, what are the plants? What are the things you most like to use? And then they told us. We took a list and then we gave them the alternate list of native plants, which would serve the same purpose to sell property. Because my goal is to get people started on the right foot. And then the map. Um, and there are other maps out there. And, you know, Audubon Society just released one. And I kind of went like, oh, well, use that one. But a lot of people reach out to us. And when I say a lot, it's all relative. This is a small community. But I really felt like I was hearing from people in Michigan and in Maine and in Florida um, in Arizona, they're like, oh, you guys have such resources or we don't have anything in here, you know, where we are. And I thought, well, that can't be true. So I just started going. I hired um, two kids, an artist and a, a guy who works in, in social land use and stuff like that from Oxy to help me. And we just started putting our own map together using an open source Google map technology. It's really, really crude, really simple, but it works. And so now you can sort of just scroll over that map and go to where you are. And the thing I like about a map is, and this is why I ultimately wanted to do the data points of people who are, who are actually creating their own gardens, is because you see who's doing it and you see who's not. And you see uh, what's close to you. You know, getting an address, pulling up a, a business is one thing, but I think looking at it and going like, oh my God, you know, even for us, our map has a lot more data points on it now than it did a, a year and a half ago. And that makes me feel very good. And I think it also makes people go, well, I want to do that too. And that's part of my thing is one thing that social media does and the tech does, it does two things. One, it takes friction out of a process you didn't even know you needed to take friction out of. You know, it makes things easier. I don't always think that's a good thing, personally. But um, And then the other thing it does is it makes you go, I want that too. And I wanted to create a space that was appealing, that boiled down ideas to make them graspable. And then I wanted them, from the very moment you had that excitement, for you to be able to go like, oh, and here's someone near me who can help. So that was my goal. And I'd been in Los Angeles for, you know, I had been here for 25 years and thought I was a pretty, you know, um, enlightened guy about nature. And my garden has taught me that I don't know anything. Absolutely, I knew nothing. Well, we're clearly both testament to the fact that our gardens are our best teachers on a daily basis. And there's always more to learn every day with them. I think yours are great and ambitious goals. And the more wild yards we have, the better our world will be. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today, David. That was certainly my pleasure. I, I love your show. And uh, I, I think these are some of the most important conversations we can have now. 
For this, our second week of a multi-episode series looking at the work of native plant organizations and gardeners around the country, we spoke with David Newsom, filmmaker, photographer, and storyteller. As a gardener and father, he was called to found an endeavor known as the Wild Yards Project, the mission of which is to inspire and help realize the transformation of backyards to native habitat wherever you live. Join us again next week as the conversations and this series continues, looking at a variety of native plant organizations and gardeners around the country. We'll be joined by two women in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast working on a project to help you plant better native and habitat-friendly flower gardens. Their work is Plant Me a Rainbow. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from David Newsom's Wild Yards Project and his own Wild Backyard, go to this week's episode notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.